A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That was an amazing, amazing day. It was a sandstorm, right? So I'm standing in a garbage dump in a sandstorm in the desert, a place I never thought I would wind up. This is Howard Scott Warshaw. In a past life, Howard was a video game designer for one of the world's most iconic game companies. In April of 2014, Howard showed up at a city landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico, chasing a legend. Back in 1983, Atari buried around a dozen truckloads of trash in Alamogordo. Ever since, there have been rumors about precisely what they'd buried. And the story was that this lonely patch of desert was the last resting place of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, of unsold copies of one of the most notorious video games ever created. Howard had developed some of Atari's biggest hits, but he also created the game E.T. the Extraterrestrial, based on the hit Steven Spielberg movie, a video game so poorly received that history would remember it as the sole cause of Atari's sudden death spiral. There's that urban legend, right? That, you know, oh, they buried all these E.T. games in the desert. And I've always said it doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous. Why would a losing company that's failing spend extra money to get rid of something they think is worthless? It doesn't make any sense. Of course, when When you expect things to make sense, you're losing touch with Atari, that's for sure. Throughout the mid to late 70s, the Sunnyvale, California company Atari was the biggest video game company in America. They launched the hit arcade game Pong and pioneered the home video game console market with the Atari 2600. And then Atari collapsed. Three decades later, on that day in April, Warshaw, a documentary crew, dozens of video game fans, and other curious onlookers all gathered to see if the myth was true. And Warshaw watched as an excavator dug into the ground. And when something came up out of the ground, and there it was, it was an amazingly emotional moment for me. And finally, after two hours of digging, they found what everyone has been waiting for, an ET4 Atari game cartridge in the box with instructions. There were hundreds of games down there to start, and that was just the first bucket fall. You would think that seeing something you'd worked hard to create, being exhumed from a tomb of sand and garbage, might be, at best, bittersweet. But that isn't how Howard saw it. Howard was stoked. This thing that I had just driven myself into the ground to try and create almost 40 years before. There it was, generating all this excitement and enthusiasm and attention. And I thought, you know, my product still lives. 
that I had done it. I had created a piece of media all that time ago, and it's still generating some positivity, some excitement for people. The Grave in the Desert, a symbol of a marketplace flooded with bad games, memorialized the rise and fall of America's first great game company. In the years after Atari's collapse, video games would become synonymous with Japan, and specifically Nintendo. And this would be the context for Pokemon's world-changing arrival in the United States. From higher ground, this is The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. At the dawn of the 1980s, video games were becoming the world's most popular form of entertainment. And two companies from two countries, the US and Japan, were battling it out to dominate the video game marketplace. It was Atari versus Nintendo, and I probably don't have to tell you who won. Nintendo's rise ushered in a new era of entertainment for American consumers. But that story became a part of a much bigger story, as Japan's growing soft power stoked American paranoia about falling behind in a pop-cultural arms race. In this episode, we'll take you back to the dawn of the video game wars, and to Japan, where an outsider and a video game legend developed a game that would change everything. Chapter 2. Red vs. Blue It was about as simple as a game could be. Two players, two rectangles representing ping-pong paddles, and a white dot that bounced back and forth across the center of the screen. Ladies and gentlemen, from the far west coast of America, I give you... Pong! Pong was created in 1972 by Nolan Bushnell and his partner Ted Dabney. Bushnell had always had a passion for games. He worked at an amusement park while studying electrical engineering in college and would later create the iconic family entertainment pizza chain Chuck E. Cheese. Back then, basically the only people playing video games of any kind were computer scientists. Bushnell had this vision, coin-operated video games. So he and Dabney made one, but it didn't work out, in part because it was hard to play. So they made a simpler one, Ping Pong stripped to its essentials. When they test marketed Pong at a bar in Sunnyvale, people pumped so many quarters into it that the machine jammed. But back then, arcade games were mostly mechanical. When Bushnell and Dabney shopped Pong around to other game companies, nobody wanted it. So they started a company and began manufacturing Pong machines themselves. This was a Northern California-based company founded by two Americans, but they gave it a Japanese name. Atari. Bushnell took the word from his all-time favorite game, the ancient board game Go. It kind of means what check means in chess. It translates roughly to, you are about to be engulfed. They rode the success of the Pong arcade game for a while and later cut a deal with Sears to sell a machine that let you play a version of Pong on your TV set at home. And by 1975, Atari had become one of the fastest growing companies in American history with around $40 million in sales and over $3 million in profits. Atari totally dominated 
former Atari game developer Howard Warshaw. Officially, Atari didn't create video games. Video games existed before Atari, but Atari was the first company that sent them mainstream. Warshaw had earned a master's degree in computer engineering at Tulane. At the turn of the 80s, he left a square job at Hewlett-Packard to work at Atari, a very different kind of company. A place, one magazine wrote in 1982, where brainstorming about game theory and psychology was fueled by infusions of cannabis and Coors. We were doing a job no one had ever done before, right? The idea of a video game maker was new. It was a brand new thing. And were we artists? Were we technologists? Were we programmers? Were we designers? You know, what were we? I think what we really came out with was we were pioneers. The home version of Pong paved the way for what was initially known as the Atari VCS, or Video Computer System, which you know better by its eventual brand name, the Atari 2600. The idea behind the 2600 was to bring Atari's games into American living rooms instead of jockeying for space in arcades. But Atari couldn't afford to manufacture these devices independently. And in 1976, Bushnell sold the company to Warner Communications. Thanks to this much-needed infusion of cash, Atari was able to launch the 2600 in 1977, and within a few years, they had their first breakout hit, with the home version of a hit Japanese import called Space Invaders. Under new CEO Ray Kassar, the company continued turning out hit games, but by 1981, when Warshaw arrived at Atari, the company's t-shirt dress code culture was already beginning to clash with the more bottom-line-minded Warner Communications ethos. Right, when the ties meet the fries. <laughs> the incoming culture was much more of a business and profit-focused culture. You know, with a lot of products, you can make product improvements on a fairly reliable basis. You know, if you need to make the car faster, if you need to make the light brighter, you know, these are things you can do reliably, scientifically. It's not hard to do. When you need to make something new that no one's ever seen before, when you need to make something more fun, you can't do that reliably. It's a harder target to hit. Part of the magic of Atari, Warshaw says, was about experimenting and sometimes taking the kind of risks that traditional corporations don't really like to take. It's a different kind of thinking. Video games require all the technical acuity of any other technical endeavor. But they also have this fun component in that you can make this brilliant, beautifully executing, bug-free code that plays this wonderful game, and if people don't like it, it sucks, and they're right, right? Warshaw's first hit game was Yar's Revenge, released in 1982. It did so well that when one of America's most acclaimed young movie directors, Steven Spielberg, started talking to Atari about a tie-in game based on his new film Raiders of the Lost Ark, they sent Howard to pitch him ideas. So I was given the opportunity to go fly down to Burbank from San Jose and interview with Steven Spielberg, uh, one of my heroes. Warshaw is like 25 when this happens. He looks like a hippie. He flies down, talks to Spielberg about his ideas, and endears himself to the director by jokingly accusing Spielberg of being an extraterrestrial in disguise whose films, like the UFO contact drama Close Encounters of the Third Kind, are secretly pro-alien propaganda. 
And when I got back to San Jose, I found out that he had called them up and said, you don't need to send me any more people. I'm going to go with Howard. The Raiders game would also end up being huge for Atari. But before it was even in stores, Howard got another call that would change his life again. I was just finally coming to the end of a 10-month development that was grueling. And I was really looking forward to some time off. And I got a call from Ray Kazar, the CEO. I'm at my desk. He never calls me. This is my boss's 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 boss. I got a call, will you hold for Ray Kazar? And it's like, yeah, will I hold for the guy who signs my checks? Yes, I will. <laughs> right here. And he comes on. He goes, Howard, we need ET for September 1st. And this is July 27th. And I just, I didn't skip a beat. I said to him, Ray, I said, absolutely, I can deliver that for you. Programming a game was easily six to eight months of work. Howard had five weeks. He compares the process of making the game to sprinting a marathon. But Howard was coming off a couple of real triumphs. He believed he could do it. He didn't sleep much during those five weeks. But at one point, he dreamed he was playing the ultimate video game. A perfect video game. And it's a great game. It's a fantastic game, and it's a simple thing. And the whole time I'm playing it, I'm thinking, this would be so straightforward. What a great game. And in the dream, I'm actually saying to myself, remember the details. Remember these details. Remember these details. You've got to remember this game. And I woke up, and I remembered everything about the dream except the details of the game. I could not. I could not. So I don't even know if there actually was a game in the dream. But that was frustrating. For people like Howard, making video games wasn't just a technical challenge. It was a creative act, the kind of thing that takes time. But for Atari and Warner Communications, delivering the game on schedule in time for Christmas was all that mattered. Howard hit the deadline. E.T. the video game was released in December of 1982. Let's just say it was not the ultimate perfect video game. The gameplay was somehow both crude and confusing, and you spent a lot of time trying to keep E.T. from falling into different pits. The reviews were mediocre. Electronic Games Magazine wrote, Save your time and money, and if E.T. does call home, please don't tell him about this. The game sold well at first, but also got returned at a brisk pace, and Atari, who had reportedly paid about $21 million for the game rights to E.T., wound up holding the metaphorical bag, which in this case contained somewhere between 2.5 and 3.5 million unsold copies of a kind of sucky E.T. game. But that kind of stuff was happening across the board. By 1983, video games had become a multi-billion dollar industry. But there were like a hundred different companies making games for the U.S. market, including a lot of bad games pushed out by fly-by-night opportunists. Shelf space was finite, retailers couldn't stock all this product, and production had far exceeded demand, leaving everybody with piles of unsold inventory. Early 1983 turned out to be the peak, and after that came the crash. Atari lost more than $500 million. The whole American video game industry was struggling. What had been a $3.2 billion business in 1983 pulled in only $100 million in 1985. And Atari, which had been one of the fastest-growing companies in American history, had imploded. E.T., I think, became the face of the video game crash, and I was relegated to being the butt behind that face, I think is basically the way it came down. 
E.T. was a convenient scapegoat, and the idea of a game so bad it killed an industry would make for an irresistible story in years to come. But according to Warshaw, the writing had been on the wall. How do you know Rome is burning, right? You know, where's, where's the fires? And one place you could really see it was corporate parties. Right. The quality of corporate parties like Christmas parties, celebrations, things like that really started to decline and things really crashed. And you could see everything sort of coming down, but nobody wanted to admit it was really going away. When you all your dreams come true, the last thing you want to do is wake up. Meanwhile, back in Japan, Nintendo had launched their own home gaming console, the Famicom. It debuted in July of 1983, and by 1984, it had become the best-selling game console in Japan. Its success would also become an ironic footnote in Atari's obituary. As things were getting really ugly and, and sparse at Atari in 83, Nintendo did come to Atari and say, we want you to be the North American distributor of our new game system, which could have been the thing that really saved Atari. <laughs> And they said, no, no way. Why are we going to host your game system? Why, what do we need with your system? In fact, they were practically begging Atari to benefit from it, but Atari would not have it. You know that story about how Netflix met with Blockbuster Video in the year 2000 and said, hey, do you guys want to buy Netflix for $50 million? And Blockbuster was like, no, thanks. This is like the video game version of that story. So basically, the, the whatever the thing that became the Nintendo Entertainment System walked out the door of Atari. <laughs> walked right out. And they were banging on the door. They were knocking on the door. And Atari just turned out the lights and pretended we weren't home. It was unbelievable. With Atari out of the picture, Nintendo would instead release the Famicom independently in the U.S. Rebranded as the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, it got a limited test release in New York and Los Angeles. Finally tonight, the latest video game craze to sweep the United States and Japan. It's called Nintendo. Its high-tech, high-profit products accounted for over 70% of all home video game sales in 1987. The company expects industry sales to double this year. The NES console came as a bundle with technologically advanced, incredibly cool games that basically blew Atari out of the water. It was really a light bulb moment. This is Chris Kohler. He was a video game historian before video game historian was even a thing. One day in the mid 80s, Kohler was at a friend's house and witnessed the future of video games when he played Super Mario Brothers on the Nintendo Entertainment System for the very first time. It was this quantum leap of this does not look or feel or sound anything like any other video game I have ever played. These graphics almost look like a cartoon. It's so smooth. It feels so good to play it. It was like Dorothy stepping into a world of color. After that, Kohler was sold. And he began to wonder, where was this stuff coming from? Chris went on to study all things Japanese in school. There's like this video game mecca of the world in Japan. So all of these, these great video game designers, you know, live there. After college, Chris got a Fulbright and headed to Japan to answer a question. What is this magic? How are they able to create such amazing games? 
It was 1985. The domestic American video game industry had collapsed under its own weight. And as video game journalist Greg Miller argues, Japan's video game makers were primed to fill the void. So talk about video games in the early 80s, or at least pre-Pokemon days, right? You are talking about Japan's influence in the United States. You are talking about the way Sega and Nintendo, of course, were able to come in here and exist in a post-video game boom way. Even before the crash, Nintendo had planted a flag in America. If you're going to talk about video games, you're going to talk about them coming in and becoming the best uh, and biggest entertainment in America, right? You have to talk about Nintendo, and you have to talk about Super Mario Brothers, and you have to talk about Zelda. I mean, the list goes on, and they all trace right back to Shigeru Miyamoto. In 1977, the soon-to-be legendary video game designer Shigeru Miyamoto was hired as an apprentice at Nintendo, a Kyoto-based toy company that had started all the way back in the 1880s, making playing cards. In the early 80s, Nintendo tried to develop a video game based on the Popeye cartoons. But when they couldn't secure the license, Miyamoto created characters of his own for a platform game that mirrored the central love triangle of Popeye. In his version, you play a carpenter who's trying to rescue a damsel from a gorilla named Donkey Kong. When the game was adapted for release in the U.S., the carpenter became known as Mario. Nintendo was struggling financially as the decade began, and Donkey Kong was a much-needed smash hit. But with its narrative storyline and memorable characters, it was also a giant leap forward for games as a medium. You know, when you talk about, like, Shigeru Miyamoto and Donkey Kong, if you look at Donkey Kong, it was like, this game has a story. Video game historian Chris Kohler. When you start a game of Donkey Kong, like you see Donkey Kong grabbing Pauline, Mario's girlfriend, and he hauls her up to the top of this structure and he puts her down and she shouts, help, help. And then you have Mario. And now that's a story because that stakes. You know what just happened and now you know what you're trying to do. Shigeru Miyamoto went on to create some of the most renowned and popular video games of all time. The games he created for the NES, like Super Mario Bros. and The Legend of Zelda, cemented his legend and helped turn the NES into an international sensation. And unlike Atari, Nintendo took steps to keep the marketplace from becoming flooded with bad games. They set up quality control measures, including a golden Nintendo Seal of Quality sticker on officially approved game cartridges. The sort of mystique starts to build up, especially as Nintendo, which had been kind of a black box for a while as far as like, where do these games come from? They start talking about, oh, well, you know, Super Mario Brothers was invented by Mr. Shigeru Miyamoto. He is the world's greatest video game designer. <laughs> and again, you know, you played Super Mario Brothers versus other video games at the time, and it really did seem to exist on this higher plane. And the rise of Nintendo was one of many ways in which Japanese corporations shaped the way Americans lived, shopped, and played in the late 20th century. Japan's transformation into an industrial powerhouse and a hotspot of cultural influence began way back in the period after World War II. After completely decimating the country, America had an incentive to help bolster the Japanese recovery due to the Cold War with the Soviet Union. The United States decided that it was going to prioritize Japan's economic well-being, recovery, and therefore social stability, because, you know, what they didn't want was a communist revolution in Japan. This is Hiromu Nagahara, a historian of modern Japan at MIT. 
In the decades since 1945, the United States became only more important, I think, to Japan's place in the world, and a lot of the sense among many Japanese of 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 you know where they were in the world.、Um, and so there was also this presence of America as、uh, as something that people aspired to for their everyday life. America became something that was desired, something that was desirable. Between 1945 and 1991, Japan experienced what economists and historians called an economic miracle. An improved post-war education system produced the world's leading literacy rate and high rates of education overall. Seemingly overnight, Japan re-emerged as one of the most developed countries in the world. And so, by the end of the 1970s, you have a situation where Japan is not only one of the most important military allies for the United States, but also As it turns out, the second largest economy in the world. This country was leveled after World War II. I mean, there was no industrial infrastructure left. There was very little civilian infrastructure left. So Japanese had to literally rebuild their nation from ash. Matt Alt is an American author who resides in Tokyo. That march toward industrialization and urbanization he's describing would forever change the makeup of the country. The pace and texture of day-to-day -day life in Japan was changing, and that change would continue for decades. Game developer Satoshi Tajiri, born in 1965, would watch the city overtake and erase the bucolic settings where he'd played and collected insects as a kid. And his most famous creation, Pokemon, was in part an attempt to recreate the sense of natural wonder he'd grown up with. But as the country modernized, Matt Alt says. Places like Tokyo, in particular, became these sort of petri dishes for innovation、uh, in terms of consumer trends and lifestyles. So you know, Japan made itself rich in the years after World War II by making all of the stuff that the world needed: cars, appliances, electronics, all sorts of things like that that we needed in our daily lives. But it made itself loved. By creating all of this stuff that we wanted desperately, even though we didn't need it, Alt calls these products fantasy delivery devices. Video games, Hello Kitty products, karaoke machines, Tamagotchis—you know—the list goes on and on and on. And over the course of the second half of the 20th century, Japan began to corner the market on delight. And I don't think any other nation. Has experienced such a whiplash, profound shift as Japan has in the 20th century to now, where in the 1940s we are literally dropping bombs on Japan, we're leveling it to the ground. Today, it's seen as the the, the place you want to go to make your dreams come true. Meanwhile, Japanese automakers like Toyota and Honda began making major inroads into the American car market. With superior engineering and industry-leading reliability, a major technology firm, Tatsuko, rebranded itself Sony so as to better court American consumers. Hiromu Nagahara says that Japan's rapid economic rebirth created a climate of fear among American leaders about Japan. By the end of the 1970s, there is a shift in tone amongst certainly U.S. observers. So U.S. intellectuals、uh, and certainly, you know, politicians of seeing 
Japan not only as a military ally and a Cold War ally, but as a, as a potential economic threat、uh, and, at the very least, a significant competitor. I think there was a sense at that time that maybe Japan could become number one, certainly in terms of its economy. Different economic sectors in the United States were suffering in stagflation and slowing down and was certainly being. Beaten by Japanese competition in, in the global market,、uh, you know, including steel, automotive industry,、uh, electronics. And by the end of the 80s, the idea of Japan as a resurgent empire poised to dominate the world, capitalistically rather than militarily, was all over American pop culture. Blade Runner, the second Back to the Future, and even the Alien movies depicted or alluded to an impending and historically inevitable 21st century in which Japanese corporations have carved up the Western world. And the cold and relentless Japanese businessman had become a new villain stereotype. In 1992, Michael Crichton published Rising Sun, a best selling novel that's full of cautionary rhetoric about Japan coming to eat our economy alive. When it became a movie in 1993, with Wesley Snipes and Sean Connery investigating a murder connected to a Japanese company's takeover of an American corporation, there were concerns that the movie could stoke real life hate crimes. One activist said it depicted its Japanese characters as, quote, ruthless, aggressive people intent on getting their way in business through blackmail, extortion, and even murder. The irony is that by the early 90s, when Rising Sun hit theaters, Japan's economy had actually started to stall. But the notion of Japan as America's economic nemesis, and the climate of suspicion and distrust that came with that idea, continued to inflect the way a lot of Americans thought about Japanese cultural products, including a certain video and card game franchise that was about to hit the American market. There's a lot of anti Japan kind of rhetoric around something like Pokemon, and, and just a suspicion. This is Dr. Christine Yano, an anthropology professor and researcher at the University of Hawaii. How can this corporation be that clever? And this kind of insinuating that there's a particular kind of Asian cleverness by which our children will get stolen from under our, our noses. We're going to get into this more in our next episode. But Dr. Yano suggests that at least some of the people in America who worried that American kids were too into Pokemon. We're really voicing concerns about the end of America's cultural dominance. I think part of that fear was actually quite a racist fear, an anti Japan fear, that this tidal wave of popular culture was going to overtake their children, right? It's that yellow peril thing, like they'll start them young and get hooked on Japanese pop culture, and before you know it, they'll forget their, their true patriotism. To the United States. It's like, how can you like Pokemon more than, say, Mickey Mouse? Sakaya Hatskokai, Nintendo Rokujuyon, Sono, Sube, Teo, Shokai, Stay, Kitaikam. これあまりね、ハードの力自慢ってしたくないんですよね。で、今まあ、名前が六十四なんでしょうがないんですけど。This is Shigeru Miyamoto, the father of Mario, hawking Nintendo's newest game console, the Nintendo 64, on Japanese TV in 1995. In this clip, Miyamoto's dressed in a black suit and a black shirt, no tie. A cool elder statesman of the video game world at the advanced age of 43. 
By then, Miyamoto's legacy was secure. He'd given the world the Mario franchise and created groundbreaking games like The Legend of Zelda, a fantasy adventure inspired by his own happy memories of exploring the mountains and forests near his boyhood home in the village of Sonobe, outside Kyoto. He would point in particular to the experience of exploring a cave during his childhood as a kind of origin story for his creativity. In a 2010 New Yorker profile of Miyamoto, Nick Palmgarten wrote, The cave certainly is an occasion for easy irony. The man who has perhaps done more than any other person to entice generations of children to spend their playtime indoors in front of a video screen happened to develop his peculiar talent while playing outdoors at whatever amusements or mischief he could muster. It's also something Miyamoto has in common with Satoshi Tajiri, who grew up collecting bugs and roaming around undeveloped land, then went on to create Pokemon, a video game that let urban kids experience something like natural wonder on their Game Boys. And in the early 1990s, these two creative geniuses started working together. Matt Alt again. I mean, the chance for Tajiri to work with Miyamoto must have been like, imagine you're a young physicist and getting to work with Albert Einstein or Stephen Hawking. I mean, Miyamoto is that level of game designer. He's, he's the, 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 at the kind of pinnacle of it. And so I, I'm sure Tajiri was overjoyed to be paired with Miyamoto. Tajiri's obsession with video games went back to Space Invaders. But Tajiri's career in video games started in 1983, when he and his partner Ken Sugimori, the original illustrator of Pokemon, started a self-published zine called Game Freak. Chris Kohler again. He was just like, oh, there's, you know, there's not enough uh, reading material out there about video games. I'm going to start making my own. And so he starts putting together this newsletter, making photocopies of it, things like that, and selling it. Tajiri wrote articles documenting his visits to arcades and game shops and shared tips for beating difficult games. Game Freak became really popular, and after a while, Tajiri started to wonder what else he could do in the video game field. Tajiri and Sugimori started a development company also called Game Freak, and in 1989, they released their first game, a cute and elegantly simple puzzle adventure game called Quinty. Nintendo wanted to work with them and have Game Freak do uh, a game based on the Yoshi character that had been introduced in Miyamoto's, you know, Super Mario World on the Super NES. Yoshi was a falling block puzzle game like Tetris, but with a cute dinosaur. It was the beginning of Game Freak's relationship with Nintendo. And one of the Nintendo producers Tajiri worked with on the game was Shigeru Miyamoto. Tajiri starts working with uh, Shigeru Miyamoto and had pitched him this idea uh, that he was calling Capsule Monsters. And it really kind of like, it, it brought in a whole lot of different themes. Um, on the one hand, you have Tajiri's love of going out to nature and collecting bugs um, and uh, the taxonomy of bugs and what kind of a bug is this? And if you take this bug and this bug and put them into a box, what happens? And also the love of like, I, I, I found this, now I can take it home with me. Now this is mine. Under Miyamoto's tutelage, Tajiri would create a game that would incorporate his childhood fascination with the outdoors into a game format known as the RPG, or role-playing game. Tajiri and Miyamoto's working relationship was a unique moment in video game history, as Tajiri found himself both collaborating and sometimes sparring with his hero, Matt Alt again. 
Tajiri saw uh, Miyamoto as as a mentor, a senpai, a sensei. You know, to him, Miyamoto was the creator of all of these transformative, revolutionary games that had so changed Tajiri's life when when he was younger. But they struggled fiercely. There was a lot of back and forth. I think it was it was Miyamoto's duty and and job to say no you know, to a lot of things that uh, Tajiri wanted to do. I mean, that's how it goes in the game development process. In the Japanese version of the Pokemon TV series, the protagonist's name is Satoshi, like Tajiri. His main rival is named Shigeru. So recall, if you will, Howard Warshaw, back in the 80s, banging out the E.T. game in five weeks. It wasn't great, but it was playable, and it took just over a month. The development process for what became the first Pokemon game took six years. Game Freak nearly went bankrupt. According to Chris Kohler, the project would probably not have survived at Nintendo if not for Miyamoto. There were probably many multiple opportunities for this game to get canceled at some point, but Tajiri really had the backing of Miyamoto, who had a lot of pull within Nintendo. He really, he really wanted to see it through because they really believed that they had something really, really unique with this that was going to be something that you could do on this Nintendo device that, that almost wouldn't even be possible on many other popular devices at this point. When Tajiri started working on Pocket Monsters, the Game Boy, released in Japan in April 1989, was still a brand new platform. And in conceptualizing his game, Tajiri homed in on one innovative aspect of the device, the link cable, which allowed you to connect your Game Boy to somebody else's. Tajiri looked at that and said, wait a minute, you're linking two games together. Like that's something you can't do on any platform. Tajiri envisioned the link cable as a hollow tube through which different tiny creatures could travel from one Game Boy to another. This idea, it all kind of coalesces of, oh, okay, you collect creatures, and then somebody else has the game, you link up, and you can swap the creatures back and forth. You know, and so this was the, you know, that's the idea. It was called Capsule Monsters. And so that was sort of roughly, you know, what Tajiri had pitched. And Miyamoto, who really has an excellent eye for what's going to be the next big thing, he really understood that this was a great concept. But then six years pass. And as Tajiri's game, now known as Pocketo Monstro, or Pocket Monsters, approached the finish line of the development process, the Game Boy was nearing the end of its life cycle. Tajiri was creating an audacious new game for a technology that was close to being retired. In 1996, it was old, sort of aging hardware. And, you know, additionally, it was a hard sell because the unique aspects of this property were not immediately apparent. Game Freak finally finished Pocket Monsters Red and Green in October 1995, and Nintendo released it in Japan the following year, on February 27, 1996. Typically, according to Chris Kohler, video games in the Japanese market rack up half their lifetime sales in the first week. The second week, it sells a bunch more, and then it kind of drops off after that. It, it's, it's all very front-loaded. The game's first week sales were just okay. Next week, it doesn't do that well, but then it keeps selling, and then it keeps selling, 
And the next thing you know, now it's now it's selling ridiculous numbers. And it just it took a while to get there um, because it was so driven by, I think, word of mouth that this is something really special and unique. Kids telling other kids, you got to go buy this. And it really just it just explodes. Pokemon became this kind of quiet phenomenon uh, among kids of Japan, which Nintendo, you know, to its credit, cannily exploited. That once they realized that this was something that they could market, they threw their weight entirely behind it. And the Pokemon adventure, as it were, began. As the video game took off, a Pocket Monsters card game launched in October of 1996. A manga series and the first season of the animated cartoon show followed in 1997. The first Pokemon Center store opened in Tokyo in 1998, a few months before the release of the first Pokemon animated feature film. At first, nobody in Japan seemed all that eager to take this show on the road. RPGs hadn't caught on with American gamers, and there was a belief that American children wouldn't sit still for what was basically a pastoral game about collecting and trading different monsters with funny names. The thinking inside Nintendo was that this game would never sell abroad. It was too Japanese to sell abroad. So Nintendo as a company certainly did not have any grand plans for conquering the outside world with it. But as Pokemon got bigger and bigger in Japan, Nintendo decided to give it a try. They scheduled the U.S. launch of Pokemon for 1998, licensing the toy rights to Hasbro and the right to create an Americanized version of the anime series to a New York-based production company. But before Pokemon aired on American TV, an incident involving the Japanese version of the cartoon show would make headlines around the world. It was, to say the least, not the most auspicious introduction for a newly global brand. An investigation's underway in Japan into why more than 600 children suffered from convulsions and vomiting after watching a television cartoon program. It's thought that bright flashing lights in the cartoon, Pocket Monsters, were to blame. It was December 1997, and one scene in the 38th episode of the Pokemon cartoon series, entitled Deno Senshi Porygon, caused a mass seizure incident across Japan. The episode featuring the character Porygon had given kids uh, epileptic seizures in Japan because they had used a, a very fast red and blue flashing strobe light effect on the screen and it had caused hundreds of kids uh, to get taken to the hospital. And this was a huge scandal and this became worldwide news. The animated series was pulled from the airwaves in Japan for four months and the Japanese police investigated the production team, finding no evidence of foul play. When the show resumed broadcasting new episodes, they also aired a public service announcement explaining what had happened and apologizing to viewers. Again, no American child had ever seen or would ever see this episode, at least not until years later. You can watch it on YouTube now if you're feeling lucky. USA Today still felt the need to reassure readers that, quote, American children aren't likely to suffer seizures provoked by TV cartoons, not because this was an unusual freak occurrence, but because they mostly weren't watching the, quote, graphic Japanese cartoons known as anime. Sensationalized news stories like these were the first thing most Americans heard about Pokemon. So when the game and everything that went with it reached this country, it arrived under a cloud of controversy. 
So I got a copy of the video. I had one and we had it in our office. And, you know, we, we made sure that we looked at it far away and didn't look at it. It's like looking at an eclipse, you know, we're like looking at it like this. Um, but uh, I could see how it, it could have happened. This is the guy who got the rights to launch the Pokemon TV show in America. His name is Norman Grossfeld. And though the seizures may have been scary, they also got a lot of press coverage in America. It hadn't even aired in the U.S. yet, but everyone was already talking about Pokemon. Norman saw it as a positive sign that he'd gotten in on something that had the potential to be huge. At first, we're like, uh-oh, we'd already made this deal and we already put all the plans in place for how we were going to take the show out. Then we decided that it was good publicity. Next time on The Big Hit Show, Pikachu takes America. You could not be aware of the multimedia-ness of Pokemon in the late 90s. It was everything. Pokemon's creator weathers a corporate notes process. It seemed a little overwhelming that we're in a meeting with like 30 people and saying this is what we're doing with your baby. The Pokemon cartoon becomes a machine that spits money. So we were able to take the half-hour show that we had and make sure that every minute of that show, every second, was serving as a commercial. And no one is safe. First of all, motherfuckers were getting beat up left and right in my middle school over Pokemon cards and Pokemon games. It was pandemonium. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Taylor Jones and Sabrina Fang. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Production help from Tyler Hill. Alex McGinnis is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Theme music and studio direction by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Our editor is Jamie York. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jenna Levin is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman. 